Welcome back, everyone. This is Craig Lauer from the Peds Ortho Podcast. I am excited to be coming to you again this February with uh, our long-awaited guest, Derek Kelly from Campbell Clinic. And um, Derek, great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, I am joined uh, right now with just one of my co-hosts. Go ahead. Hey, everyone. It's Josh. Josh Holt, beautiful University of Iowa. Um, we are, uh, I think Carter's on vacation and Julia is stuck in the operating room, uh, unfortunately, uh, not planned, but we're hoping she'll join us later. So, um, stay tuned for that. And, um, Derek, it's great to have you. I just wanted to start off by letting the, the folks that don't know you who are listening, maybe get to know you a little bit better. I think one of the great things about our society and, uh, our, our group is that I think everyone's pretty, uh, easygoing and accessible. And, um, I think you, uh, are that to a T and um, I'd love for everyone else to get to know you. So uh, I know a little bit about um, about your history and just from looking you up and it sounds like you did a lot of your training and uh, uh, from Arkansas. And so I'm guessing you grew up in Arkansas is kind of what I recall. Is that right? That's right. I grew up in a really small town in Southwest Arkansas near the Arkansas, Texas border, a little small farming community near Texarkana. And um I was going to ask, I, I think that that informs a little bit of your leisure activities as we were just talking before we hit record about uh, your recent fishing trip. But what do you like to do when you're not at the hospital? Uh, well, so, uh, yeah, as we just talked about, I guess um, when I really get to go and do something, I like to, to go fishing. Uh, I'm not much of an angler on my own, but I'm really good at following the recommendations and instructions of guides to catch fish. So I like I like guided fishing trips. My wife and I do have a little small boat and we'll take it out with the kids. Uh, but that's that's a kind of a rare event for me. The, the main thing I do is uh, chase my two little girls around and try to be a dad as much as I can uh, when I'm not uh, busy working. That's great. I think uh, a lot of the other fathers and parents on the podcast can can relate to that. Um, when it uh, that it sounds like then you must have been a very uh, teachable trainee if you're uh, this good at following other anglers for their advice. Uh, would you would you agree with that? Or just I don't know. I've never really thought about it that way. Maybe that, <laughs> that is maybe that is true. The the guy the anglers will tell you that my wife is much better at following instructions than I do. That she always catches more and bigger fish, and they say it's because she listens to directions more than I do. Uh, they got if they're anything like me, they'd have to tell me three times, and then then I'd probably catch on. Um, so, uh, I, I did want to ask orthopedics related, what would you say, we always ask about the top case, but I think we find people splitting hairs and, um, I mean, everyone loves open hip reduction. So like, I'm going to give you top three cases. What are the three cases you just love to see on your schedule? Or maybe you don't want to see it all the time, but you like it when you get to do it. Top three cases. So see, I listen to this podcast all the time and I think what, what the four of you do is, is fantastic. So I, I knew the question was coming. So I prepared for the one case. And now you've uh, you've hit me with the three. Uh, let me see if I can come up with the other two. So um, I thought about it long and hard. And even though I find the cases mentally and physically challenging, I think I really enjoy a, a 60 to 70 degree idiopathic curve. Uh, not too small that it's, it's too straightforward, but something with a bit of challenge. I feel those like those cases are very rewarding. Uh, I think the most common case I do, uh, yeah, definitely the most common case I do is a perctinotomy. Um, I do them in the operating room setting, but I do them with local. I just like the um, the OR for the ability to kind of control the, the environment a little bit more than the clinic. 
And my clinic is actually a little bit uh, separate from the hospital. So if I had to get to the hospital quick, I'd have to actually have to cross the street. So um, so I really like to do them in that uh, setting. And then I like trauma. I mean, I like, you know, to know there's a fracture the next day or one overnight that I'm going to get to do first thing the, mo the next morning, whether it be a, a tricky supercondylar or a, a femur fracture. I've got, a, I've got an IT fracture tomorrow and an adolescent. So um, I like some bread and butter trauma when I can get it. That sounds great. And you found a way to work five cases in there with spraying yeah. out the trauma. That was, that was good. Um, but the one that he had thought about and pay attention to the audience, the one he had thought about the most was the uh, uh, moderate uh, AIS case. So that is, uh, must be a top case for you. All right. On the cons on the flip side of that, I wanted to ask what your most feared case is. And I think this is on my mind because I've got a cavus foot tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask what, what either keeps you up at night or makes you kind of groan like, okay, here we go. Well, so, I mean, I, I hope to be able to, to bring a lot of my mentors into this discussion tonight, but the thing that pops into my head is one thing I've heard Jim Beatty say many times, one of the best cases in all of pediatric orthopedics is a open hip reduction, and one of the worst cases in all of pediatric orthopedics is a revision open hip reduction. So I hate having to go back in and tackle one of those hips that's come back out or developed a bad AVN or something terrible has happened. Those are Those are really challenging and I load the boat on those, bring as many partners as I can on those. That's a, that's a great point. And Josh is nodding vigorously, um, thinking about a revision open hip, yeah, I guess. No fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I actually, my next question was going to be about, um, I, I try not to say the most impactful mentor you've had, but I do want to give people a sense of maybe where you've trained and where your thought process align. And you mentioned Jim Beatty, who was kind of who I was thinking you might bring up and um, it's, it's great to bring that in, but I know any any impactful mentor that comes to mind um, that has really influenced your career and where you've ended up. And it doesn't have to be the most impactful. Yeah, of course, that is boy, that is a really tough question, especially in pediatric orthopedics, as people mm -hmm. are so gracious with their time. Uh, and there's so many wonderful people. I mean, from training, um, I had Jim Aronson, Dale Blazier and Rick McCarthy, among a couple of others in Little Rock that just poured into me so much knowledge and, and advice. And then I was at TSRH for my fellowship. And that list is a mile long. Uh, but Tony Herring's at the top of it. I mean, he's just, he's phenomenal in, in all ways. Um, and I respect and and take as much time as I can whenever I see Tony. Uh, and then when I got to Campbell Clinic, I mean, the folks ahead of me were Jim Beatty and Bill Warner and now Jeff Sawyer, uh, who have done so much for my career. And then even outside that, I mean, the, the list is so long within Posna. I mean, it's, uh, I can just start naming off names and and probably take up the whole hour worth of podcasts for all the people who have worked so hard to, to help me out. And I know they're all doing the same for, for all of you. So it's, it's a great organization to be a part of. What, what's the characteristic that maybe draws you the most to, to those people who have, who have kind of helped you, if there's anything that kind of unites them or the ones that you really bond with? And for whatever reason, and I, I know it's outside because I mean, I'm in a multi-specialty group. I have partners from all subspecialties here and, and I see these characteristics, but within pediatrics, people are just so giving with their time. They're, they're, they'll, they will set aside to speak with you and answer your questions and try to offer guidance and experience where they can. And I think that is the thing that really draws us to these mentors is their willingness to do that. I hope to emulate it. I hope I'm learning those skills. Maybe I can find some people that I can pass that on to and maybe try to give pay forward a little bit of all that I've got from them. Yeah, what I, what I was going to say is, you know, and you're a good example of being willing to get out and be part of groups and be part of some of these circles. And I think that's one of the things I would advise some of our younger practice listeners to do is 
to find some of these these circles that you can get involved in, whether it's POSNA as a whole or, again, as we were talking before we came on, some of these um, smaller, more kind of destination groups to talk about whether it's trauma, whether it's spine, whatever it is within pediatrics. Um, I think getting in some of those social circles as well as those academic circles is one of the real joys of our fel- of, of our fellowships and our, our practice in pediatrics is everyone is so willing and accommodating to bring new people in and really help out. So I think you're a good example. You've been, you know, a, a friend of the podcast and been willing to do different things with us, which is awesome. But then it gives us that exposure to you, which then helps to propagate some of those um, feelings. So, so all the younger practice listeners, certainly by kind of getting out and putting yourself in positions to meet and interact with people uh, like Dr. Kelly and others, uh, it's really one of the, the great benefits of our, of our uh, specialty. Definitely yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, you're certainly certainly paying it forward, and thanks for for your time uh, with us tonight. So uh, again, uh, just to int- reintroduce our guest, we have uh, Derek Kelly with us uh, tonight, and uh, he's a professor of orthopedic surgery at Labonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and they're associated with the Campbell Clinic. And you guys have great residency, great fellowship, and a great group of partners there, uh, including the uh, you know past Posna president, current Posna president, um, some great people. So. Um, I wanted to highlight uh, one bit of recent research out of your institution where you were the the lead author, and I'll recognize uh, the lead author, Stephanie Chen. Um, is this one of your residents? Yeah, Stephanie uh, was one of our residents. She graduated last year. Uh, she's currently doing her um, resident, I mean, sorry, fellowship, and then she's going to be doing a second fellowship at Gillette, and she's actually going to be coming back and joining us here as uh, one of my partners uh, in early 24, so we're super oh, excited great. about it. Back. That's great. So uh, another pediatric person. Yeah. When, when yeah. you mentioned that she had graduated, I was really uh, dreading you telling us that she was going into joints or something like that. So no, she she's going into peds and I'm, I'm super excited about it. That's fantastic. Um, so this study is called prospective randomized Ponsetti treatment for clubfoot orthopedic surgeons versus physical therapists. And uh, it's probably not supposed to be uh, quite as oppositional as I just read it. Um, But the purpose of the study was to understand the outcomes of patients who were treated with casting with uh, with an MD, uh, pediatric fellowship trained doctor versus PTs. And it sounds like your PTs had quite a bit of experience in training and club feet. So they're not just any PTs off the street. Um, But the methods, uh, it's it's a randomized prospective study performed over five years. There were 126 infants of all club foot etiologies included. Um, your groups were uh, pretty much equal when you compare the demographics of, of where patients ended up, um, other than the, the patients who were treated by the PTs were a little bit older, maybe probably not clinically significant. You had a mean follow-up of, of 2.6 years, and the number of casts uh, applied, it was about a 4.1 cast average, so pretty low number, and it trended to a lower number in the doctor group, um, but uh, there was no difference in the recurrence rates or surgery rates between the PT and the MD groups. And so your takeaway here is that um, uh, the study, uh, this is quoted out of the study, our study gives confidence to centers worldwide that properly trained providers can achieve equivalent results for babies with clubfoot deformity. And um, I, I think that that's a really, really great way to wrap that up. But I, I, as I was reading this, I was so curious about how the study came about and why why you asked this question. And um, I imagine there was uh, something going on internally that made you want to 
compare these outcomes. So what was the impetus for this study? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, let me get into that. Before I do, uh, I, I need to make sure I say one potential conflict of interest. It was completely unrelated to this study, as I was not a consultant at the time, but I recently signed a consulting agreement with MD Orthopedics, and they do have a clubfoot brace, um, and uh, among other uh, clubfoot products. Uh, none of them were used on any of these patients, but um, I am a consultant for that group now, so I want everybody to know that. Uh, I have no other relevant conflicts for this or anything else. Um, as far as uh, why we did this, so when I joined the practice uh, here in 2008, they had already established physical therapists in their clubfoot clinic. Uh, they were um, they had a very great group here. Camel Clinic has always been a great pediatric group, but their patient population had grown a little faster than their attendings, uh, and they were getting a little bit stretched thin. And so, in in, a, in an attempt to try to uh, make sure all the patients were cared for, they they found some partnerships with physical therapy. They, uh, they had proper training, they went off and did courses, they were instructed, but they were actually applying some of the casts to unload the MDs a bit. And uh, when I got here, um, I uh, took over the Clubfoot program, uh, something I was interested in, and there was a little bit of a niche that needed filling, but I wanted to know, is there really any difference between these two groups? Uh, are the therapists actually doing as well as the MDs? And so pretty quickly after getting here, I set up this study, uh, you can see from the long period of time, from the completion of the study to now, we had some difficulty getting the thing finally analyzed and out there into print, but um, it was a long run to get the patient numbers we wanted uh, and to get the follow-up we wanted and, and then to get the proper analysis. So the, the main impetus was that physical therapy was already doing casting here when I arrived, and I wanted to know um, were the results equivalent. Did you uh, suspect that they were equivalent before you started? So that was our hypothesis that they would be. And the, the way the clinic is set up and the way it was set up then, it's the same as it is now. We work side by side. We're not in geographically distant locations. It's not like patients go to the physical therapy department across campus and, and I see my patients in my clinic. The therapists actually come to the same location that, uh, that I am there on that day. They have a couple of rooms where they cast. I have a couple of rooms where I cast but we share the same physical space. And so we're, we're constantly kind of checking on, you know, sort of each other's patients. Um, and uh, in which case, um, you know, they're, they're sort of set up to be equivalent. And I would expect that they would have been, I would have been somewhat surprised had they not been. And then well, in addition to that, we're very fortunate. We have uh, child life in our clinic, um, clubfoot clinic each day. We have the orthodist immediately on site as well. And we have our nurse practitioner, uh, who is also uh, trained in clubfoot casting that I can work with when the residents and fellows aren't around trying to learn. And that's a great setup to run a clubfoot clinic. Um, and and I think it's um, great to know that we can train other people and you don't have to be a fellowship trained physician. And, and I, I would agree that that's probably the case. Um, I'm wondering how generalizable this is. You know, we live in an area of the country um, where, you know, there's four hours between us and their patients who are traveling two hours to see, you know, one of our institutions, right, or often coming from even further. And it's really difficult for those patients who have to come get serial casts. And it would be great if there were people on a more local level who could do this sort of thing. So my question for you is how generalizable is this? Is this something that pediatricians can do? You already referenced NPs and PAs. Could nurses do this? Receptionists, hospital administrators, perhaps? <laughs> Um, who, who is capable of learning this and doing it well? Uh, well, so uh, from the standpoint of this study, I can only speak to therapists clearly, right? But um, but our, our nurse practitioners do casting as well. 
Uh, I know there are some other studies from even around the world where, you know, local healthcare personnel, uh, various levels of training are, are taught to do some of these casts uh, also. So I think lots of people can be trained, but you got to be careful when you read this study and try to generalize that this is a fairly controlled environment and, and a reasonably sized um, institution with a fairly good sized patient population so that people get reps and get used to it. I think if a patient was going to show up to a community pediatrician's office that's two hours from either Nashville or Memphis, and that pediatrician may only see one clip foot a year, I don't expect that that person's going to be able to keep their skills up enough. But in a place where you see high enough volume and you have a lot of colleagues around who share the similar interest in that pathology, I think this model can work very well. But definitely do not want to overstate our results. It says, you know, pretty much anybody can, can do this and expect to get the same good results. Yeah, and that's the question I was going to ask is I had a fortune to go to Jordan and do a lot of teaching of clubfoot with Dr. Marquende, and we had pediatric orthopedic providers from around the whole region from seven or eight different countries there, and many of them were one of two or maybe three pediatric orthopedists in their entire country. And so really the discussion of who else could potentially do this, who could they train, right? The whole point of the course was trying to train them how to set up a clubfoot program that then they could go and train other providers. And I think to what you just said, it isn't about the initials after your name or what formal training you've had. It's more about getting the appropriate training up front. So you know how to do it the right way, having some sort of control, right? Where you're checking on each other. There's some sort of um, making sure that you're getting the right treatment provided, but then the last would be just having enough volume. And so I'd be curious in your estimation, what, what would that be? What do you think the volume of clubfoot patients that you'd have to have to be able to uh, kind of keep your skills proficient and be able to deliver good care? I'd just be speculating here. Um, uh, it would probably be something less than our numbers. I would say if you had access to one or two at least clubfoot new patients a month, you could probably keep up your skills. You would see enough variation in pathology that you could recognize a problem when it arose and you would know when you need to ask questions of colleagues, you know, around the country. Uh, so I would say that's probably a minimum. If you're seeing less than that, then I would worry that maybe you may not be keeping your skills up and you maybe should refer to another center. That's, yeah. that's just, that's just a guess. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I've, I thought about it a lot then and just reading through some of the literature on what people see that I was somewhere in the kind of 20 to 50 a year. So that's, that's not too far off of your one to two a month to kind of have a reasonable kind of club foot program. So that's probably, probably comparable to what I would have thought too. Um, Dr. Kelly, I was wondering if you have any tips for someone who is maybe listening to this and they're maybe at their place, uh, their institution, and they're drowning in club feet, and they're hoping that they can train someone uh, who's working with them, who's very interested in treating club feet and maybe offload some of that workload um, and work, maybe work in tandem with that surgeon. What what tips or advice would you have to someone who's trying to maybe expand their program to include more non-MDs in the casting uh, in the casting well, setup. You, you set the question up with the, the proper uh, beginning. You have to find the person who is interested in doing that. And, and I was, I've been very fortunate that I've had uh, just a few therapists. The turnover has been very minimal uh, with the group that have, I've worked with, and, and they've remained very interested and very dedicated to this. So having that person, regardless of whether it's a therapist or a nurse practitioner or a nurse or whoever it might be, uh, having someone who really wants to get in and learn this stuff, not just do it because they, they're forced to do it. It'd be super important. And then working side by side with them for a while, perhaps even go into some courses together. I think that's a great thing to do. We did that early on 
uh, the first couple of years of the practice, the whole team uh, went and we did some courses together. And then if there ever is a new therapist who comes into uh, the group, uh, they're always mentored by myself and a more experienced therapist until they're really up and running and very, very comfortable uh, before they kind of start working with, a, with the, just the two therapists in tandem. So it's it's not just letting someone go, giving them an instructional video that's, you know, 10 minutes long and say, now it's time to put on a cast. It's it's a week's worth of consistent mentorship until you know that their skills are the point where they feel comfortable and you feel comfortable. And then you also have to look at the money. So whatever um, whatever system you're in, whether it be, you know, the hospital needs to figure out how to collect and reimburse for that person's time, or if it's someone who you employ within your practice, how do you uh, justify their time in that role? Uh, if the money doesn't at least break even or make profit, it's going to be really hard to make that a sustainable model. Those are great tips. And um, I I'm curious, how did you make the money make sense with yours? Are your PTs billing for this? Do they bill through you? I think yeah, that's so, a practical tip that people might want to know. Yeah, more about. this is this is going to be different. You know, whatever system you're in, it's going to be different than what we have here. And, you know, we're all going to have different situations. My specific situation is as a Campbell Clinic doctor, um, I am not an employee of Labonner Children's Hospital, but that is where I hold this clinic because all of the key uh, components of a good clinic program, in my opinion, are, are at that hospital location, including the therapist. So the therapists who come to our clinic are not employed by my group, by Camel Clinic. They're employed by the hospital. Um, they use different codes uh, for therapy than we do for as MDs for uh, clubfoot casting. They, they bill on time, and they also have some procedural codes they use. And I have to be honest, even though I looked those up uh, recently, um, I am not that familiar with them, so I can't speak all that intelligently. But nevertheless, I do know that their time is valued by the hospital, and they continue to send them there because they are able to make a profit off of the work and the time that they uh, provide. And I, I wanted to pause and welcome Julia. Julia, thanks for being able to join us. I wanted to introduce you in, and uh, just say that you were here so that if you had any questions, um, and Josh, if you had any other follow-up questions for Dr. Kelly, we could do those. Otherwise, we'll we'll start stirring the pot. Yeah, my only question just, and even thinking about our clubfoot practice at University of Iowa, we, it would obviously make the study a lot muddier and wouldn't make clean data. But do you, in your place, do patients see different providers? Like if they come one week and see you, if they come the following week, if you're not there, you're in the OR or whatever, would they be able to pick a day that they would actually see a therapist? Or obviously it'd be make it much more difficult to study, but certainly could make some convenience for families. No, I think that certainly could work. Um, definitely, it, there's many different clubfoot models that work very well. Um, ours is uh, has been on Wednesday mornings. We do all of our casting. Wednesday afternoons, we do all of our follow-ups. And I basically sort of run the clubfoot program. So although all of my partners are trained to do clubfoot and probably would be very happy to do it, if they get a new clubfoot, they send them to the clubfoot clinic uh, where I am. Now, it's as you guys and uh, gals are all very well aware, um, clubfoot clinic is not a doctor. Clubfoot clinic is a system. And unfortunately, we have all the components in place. So they're not coming to me. They're coming to me and therapists and orthotists and child life and all the people you need to run a good program. And since that's the best place in Memphis for that care, all my partners send them to one location. But there's no reason it couldn't be otherwise. Yeah. And I think um, just to add one more, patients like that. Patients, I think there's been a couple of studies that have looked at kind of patient outcomes and expectations and being at a clubfoot center 
and having some sort of formal, whether it's even signage on a wall of the clinic, the corner that you do it, but having patients feel like they're coming to a place and to a center that has some specialization in care. And, and like you said, it's not a single person, it's a team and families and patients see that and they they feel like they're getting top level of care um, by pretty simple, call it marketing, call it signage, call it whatever you want, but by kind of centering care for them um, can go a long way. I agree completely. Hi, Julia. Hi, guys. Sorry for being late. Uh, Julia, did you put any signage up for the Necrotizing Fasciitis Center of Care? Uh, no, we will not be putting signs up. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope that is a one and done for my career, honestly. We'll see. I know where I'm sending mine. Oh, boy. Um, you're not going to have time to, Josh. I don't think that's the way it works. I mean, I think that is a learning case that not many of us see that often. And when it shows up, you... Um, you often don't have time to gather all the information. So any uh, great learning points for us with your recent necrotizing I've learned a lot. case? Yeah, I've learned a lot over the last couple of days. And, you know, peds cases are much less common than adults cases of neck fash. Um, I don't know if this has been the case at other centers, but we've had a terrible group A strep year. We've had very aggressive group A strep, um, systemic strep. Um, and this, this patient has, has group A strep and, um, that is the second most common cause of necrotizing fasciitis behind a, a polymicrobial infection. Um, and I think what's, what's sort of interesting and, and what I've learned in the last couple of days is that necrotizing fasciitis doesn't necessarily present quite the same way as an adult. Um, so you don't always have such obvious necrosis of the fat or the skin or, um, uh, such, you know, I think so, many of us have seen in, in adults neck fascia, you can literally just run your hand along that plane between the sub Q and the fascia. And um, it just tended to be a little bit more adherent. So, uh, but we were lucky enough to have our pathologist on hand and we took frozen sections down, full thickness frozen sections down and, and um, really could see neutrophilic infiltrate and, um, and the, the necrosis. And so that made the diagnosis and then we had to treat from there. So definitely a learning case for me. Um, it's a really horrible disease and, uh, yeah, just, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this year as far as other centers, if they've had as invasive with a group, group A strep, uh, situation as we have. Might be a, um, something worth looking into with some of the multi-center trauma and infection groups that I know you and um, Dr. Kelly and others at his center are part of, and obviously um, at, at Vanderbilt as well. So um, maybe something to look into with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Dr. Kelly, I did want to uh, get into stirring the pot a little bit. And um, one of the things I wanted to ask about, because, you know, I think of you as someone who uh, treats, uh, is on the cutting edge probably of clubfoot treatment. And I think your recent, um, your recent uh, uh, publication speaks to that. But I think that our listeners would be interested in, you know, some of your maybe biases or habits with regards to clubfoot treatment. So um, start off with stirring the pot and what is the correct casting material to use for clubfoot treatment? This sounds like a really fun session. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I gotta say, I'm a little nervous. Um, so favorite casting material. So I like, um, I like cotton weverell. Uh, I do a stockinette at the top. I don't usually tend to use one at the bottom. 
Um, I like to cut my two inch uh, web reel uh, in half so they become one inch, especially for the little babies. I think it goes on better. And then I like plaster. Um, I do. We do remove ours with a uh, cast saw. But I recently convinced, and you cannot imagine how difficult it was to convince the hospital to get those little small plastic tubs that the, you can put the babies in. Uh, they, the infectious disease department got involved, uh, and it took me quite a while to get those things actually in my hospital. So I'm hoping to start soaking some too, uh, because I find that uh, oftentimes we'll cut the cast off and then we'll come in to put the cast on and the mom's got the baby in the sink giving them a bath. So I figure I can get them a little tub to do it. So that's it. Uh, Weberl cut down to one inch. A little stockinette at the top to prevent that little raw irritation they often get. And I like plaster. Plaster. He says plaster is the only way. If you don't use plaster. <laughs> That's right. That's the only way anybody uses self-roll is, is, is completely as malpractice. Um, and we did talk about uh, your preference for tenotomies. And it sounds like your preference at this point is uh, infant, any age, um, OR, controlled environment. Is that right? Controlled old environment, uh, Imla cream, uh, child life uh, in the room. We uh, have the baby fasted as if we were uh, going to try to uh, hold off the bottle until we were going to put a cast on like we do in the clubfoot clinic. And then we try to give them a bottle or some sweeties during the process. And then I, but I like the OR and the kind of the controlled environment. Okay. So I actually interpret that as you were still doing it under anesthesia, but you're doing it in the OR just as the room where everything is controlled, right. but it's your only anesthesia is Imla cream and postprandial uh, feeding. That's right. We have a um, we have a, two procedure rooms that are sort of adjacent to the operating room. They're just uh, you know, we do little small dressing changes, burn dressings, and they do some other procedures in there. So it's a little procedure room. Josh, Julia, you want to jump in with any other uh, clubfoot questions? What's your uh, ideal if you had a five year follow up and you had the perfect tenotomy rate? What would it be? Well, that's a controversial one, too. Um, so the, the tenotomy rate in this study was, I believe, around 85%. I have to look back at the number specifically. 84. But, You're uh, good memory. 84. Okay. Um, so I think that'd probably be the ideal rate. Uh, there are some <laughs> arguments, particularly uh, Steve uh, Frick, who has started to challenge a little bit, are we doing those things too frequently? And uh, I've listened to his argument a few times, and, and I do believe he does have a really good thoughts on that. So perhaps we need to look at that more closely. Maybe we don't need to tenotomize as many as we are. But uh, that rate seems to be pretty consistent across multiple studies, and I think that's where we should be. And then last question is, what's the proper bracing protocol after casting is done? <laughs> uh, depends on which uh, family group you uh, follow on Facebook, right? Um, so um, ours here is uh, three months um, after um, the cast removal from the tenotomy, uh, full-time except for bathing, and then night times and nap times for three years. Um, I have a number of families who want to go longer and, and will continue to prescribe braces beyond that. But I also have a lot of families I know that I don't get good brace wear near that long. Uh, and they, many of them still do well. So I've, I've stuck with three months and three years since fellowship. Uh, but I know that there's going to be some people right now who are uh, turning off the podcast uh, and angry about stirring this pot. <laughs> All right. Um other foot conditions. Um, let's see, uh, flat foot calcaneal lengthenings. Um, what do you use to stabilize the CC joint? One pin, two pins, hopes and prayers. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. One, I use one pin. Um, I do believe the studies that it's probably more rotation than it is translation. So perhaps an off-center pin is just as good as two pins. 
Um, if you put one pin right down the center of rotation, maybe the thing will rotate anyway. But this this CC subluxation or rotation or whatever it is, it really doesn't really matter. Uh, of course, there's controversy there too. So the short answer to your question is uh, is a single pin for me. One pin eccentrically placed, so it does not rotate. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly and precisely eccentrically placed every time. <laughs> um, and then we have some articles about perthes. And if you're treating a, this is, I mean, we could stir so many pots with perthes. I mean, just mentioning it is just stirring the pot. But um, I think weight bearing is a very interesting thing. I think that there's some strong feelings, uh, particularly with the research of the TSRH and with the article we'll read about weight bearing and um do you limit weight bearing in your Perthes patients? Uh, yes. Uh, so I am um, I'm in, the, in uh, the IPSG, the International Perthes Study Group. I'm one of the members of that group. And uh, as part of my chosen uh, path through that group, I mobilize or limit weight bearing, a non-weight bearing for six weeks after varicostiotomy. Uh, that's my weight bearing protocol. Okay. But you don't limit for the three years while you're waiting for, uh, you know, fragmentation to complete and reossification yeah. remodel. No, I no, I don't. Okay. And um, let's see. Um, what is your surgical indication for perthes then? When if you mentioned the varus osteotomies, when do you perform a varus osteotomy for perthes? Yeah. So early stage disease uh, with onset over the age of eight. And I mean, yeah, at some point you stop doing that. Eleven, twelve. 13, whatever it is, sure. but um, so fairly traditional in my approach because I have not yet seen the great studies that we hope that are going to come out that are going to tell us that there's something better or the indications are different. I, I stick with uh, the the studies that are there and there's really kind of two. And, and if, uh, I, I hate that you're, I hate that you're asking about Perthes because with the IPSG, I, I can just hear all the voices in my head of all the people <laughs> who would say something completely different than everything that I just said. Uh, and they are all as equally as right as I am. Uh, that's, that's fair. We can, we can leave that one for now. All right. This is another good one. Closed reductions for type two, a supracondylar humerus fractures. Do you tell your residents to do them? No, we still pin them, but, um, but uh, we've got the the world's leading expert on this call about that. So uh, I'd like to get Julia's thoughts. I have when I read this paper, I was I was super excited because we all have these really bad type threes that the best we can get is maybe a two A on our final reduction, and it's pinned. And we're like, man, I wish it was just better. And the kids do great. And I'm always thinking, why do we struggle so hard on these two A's and pin these suckers when? Some of these really bad ones get to that point, and the kids do fine. So I'm so glad that this study is out there. I'm still trying to decide how to incorporate it in my practice, but we're still um, we're still pinning them. So Julia, please tell us. Yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that I don't think you're wrong because it's important to do what's right for your practice. And and the key take home is that there are patients that are going to lose reduction. And they're going to lose reduction somewhere between the first, you know, within that first 10 days as the swelling comes down and, or as they shift in their cast. And so the key is catching those, right? And, and so I think where this gets tricky, right, is people say, well, it's not perfect. And it's like, well, a lot of stuff we do isn't perfect, right? We reduce both bone forearm fractures and we know that some of them are going to fall off. Um, and so I would consider it more like, something like that, you know, you, you, it's a, you have to see him back for a post-reduction check. And so if the fill, the family is willing and able to do that, um, 
then you can treat them non-operatively. And the vast majority of the time, you're going to have a great, great result. Um, and I do believe that there is more remodeling in the distal humerus than we've given it credit for. And so I think future studies are going to show that, um, uh, you know, this is a different beast than, than a lateral condyle or a medial condyle, you know, that there is some remodeling. And so in, in my practice, and again, I, I will stress this, like this is, this is very practice specific. And I understand that this is something that is going to take a certain amount of comfort for, for the vast majority of people. But so when I'm on call, I will have residents do a reduction on the 2A fracture uh, as long as the family can follow up within a week. You know, the the families I worry about for, for us here in Colorado are the, the families that live in northern Wyoming, you know, southern Montana, somewhere where it's really far away. And I'm worried that they're not going to come back. Um, but it's shared decision making. I talk to them about the risks. And if they're willing to come back in a week for, for a check, then fantastic. I think we can avoid surgery. So that's my long-winded short answer. Hey, Julia, I think that this is probably a good time to just, you know, clue in the audience on that article a little bit, um, just since we've kind of naturally flowed there and we can stir the pot a little bit. Um, uh, let, let Derek stop sweating this a little bit. No, <laughs> he's doing great. But um, maybe clue us in on that study and the yeah. details uh, a yeah. little bit and we'll, we can kind of catch the listeners up on that. Absolutely. So the study came about um, because uh, as most people know that the AOS guidelines um, really suggest treatment of 2A and 2B supracondylars with close reduction and percutaneous spinning. And there's been a lot of literature um, out there for the past really 10, 15, even 20 years supporting the idea that you can treat 2A fractures uh, with closed reduction. Um, and so we did, um, and, and by we, let me clarify, I was a fellow at Rady when this, this study was ongoing. And so my fantastic mentors, um, Dr. Uposny and, and Dr. Pennock, um, really took the lead on this. But um, we did a uh, prospective, um, and I would say semi-randomized because it was based on who was on call. So we had some surgeons that we're in the non-op group, some surgeons with word that were in the op group. And so randomly, depending on when, when the patient came in, they were randomized to either non-op or op. And um, so we had 45 in the operative group and 50, excuse me, 45 in the non-operative group and 54 in the operative group. Um, and four patients were converted from non-op to op. So that was a 9% conversion rate. And they all uh, lost reduction within that first week. Um, and we're taken for successful close reduction and perk pinning. And I think that's a key thing, too, that that the CRPP was successful even uh, up to day 10 after the reduction, the attempted reduction. So it doesn't make your surgery more difficult. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to open them. Um, and we had uh, up to a year of clinical follow up. Um, the non-operative group did have a little bit more radiographic extension as measured by the hourglass angle, but there were no clinical or radiograph different, radiographic differences otherwise. And then if you looked at complication rates between the non-operative and operative groups, um, refracture was very similar. Uh, we did see a little bit of AVN, which was sort of interesting. Uh, there were no infections in the non-op group and one infection in the operative group. Um, and if you looked at patient reported outcomes up to 24 months out, um, there were no differences between the groups. So ultimately, all these kids do great. Um, you're, 
you know, we found about a 9% rate of, of needing conversion due to, to loss of reduction. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it supports, I think the key thing is it supports potentially changing those AOS guidelines to allow for close treatment um, of 2A fractures as an acceptable alternative in the guidelines. So I actually have a question about that. And that was one of the questions I put in my notes for your paper. If your paper would have been included in the guidelines, do you think that this paper adds enough um, new information or additional information to to change those guidelines? How would that paper be perceived and, and thrown in the mix? Yeah, I think that's hard, right? I mean, I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to be a part of those decision making processes, right? And if you look at how experts in the field um, take evidence, right? There has to be a, a mounting um, or, or growing or, or large enough body of evidence to support something. And what's sort of interesting is, is this seems to kind of surprise people over and over again that, that this is coming up, but there's, I, I mean, in our references, right? Like you could look through the references of this paper and I mean, there's 15 papers demonstrating that you can do this with a with a fairly low rate of failure, and so I would argue, and I think I'm biased here, um, that that this is a body of literature that now is supported by a prospective study um, showing that this is this is a reasonable treatment option, and and I don't, I, I certainly wouldn't say it's strong enough to say that close reduction should be, you know, the the option A, right? And then you shouldn't pin them, right? But I would advocate that um, you know it's color coded, right, in the AOS guidelines that that the that close reduction uh, with casting and as well as close reduction percutaneous pinning are both the green color, right? That evidence supports this use, and I, I think that that we've we've gotten to that point now. Um, I I think it's worth clarifying for some of the listeners, particularly, I know there's a lot of uh, junior faculty and trainees that listen to this podcast. And, um, you know, I think maybe even when we review this in our journal club locally, um, you made the cut, Julia, um, a lot of the gray hairs or the no hairs in the group brought up, you know, the history of this, you know, why did we start pinning these in the first place? And it has to do with the position of the casting. When they were doing close reductions, they were hyper flexing these casts, which lead to, um, essentially never events, Volkman's ischemia, contractures, compartment syndrome, et cetera. And that's what we have to avoid. And, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but you're very specific in the paper about the position of casting. You know, you maintain the reduction by a mold over the olecranon, not by flexing the elbow over 90 degrees, right? And Correct. I think it's really important for any of our trainees out there because I'm not going to be the one close reducing these. I might be the one telling them it's okay to do it, but that's, I think, important to harp on. We are not flexing these elbows past 90 degrees. Please never do that. That's why we got away from this treatment initially, right? Yep, absolutely. And, you know, there's really, um, there's a very low rate of compartment syndrome in modern day treatment of supracondylar humerus fractures, but it's not zero. And you certainly don't want to be that statistic. And so I you know, I shoot for right at that 90 degree mark, because generally when you're casting an elbow, what you think is 90 is really 80, uh, you know, and that's what I tell my trainees. And especially when you're putting a little bit of a mold on that olecranon fossa, um, you're going to lose a little bit of that flexion. And so, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right, Craig. Do not 
hyperflexes. Um, and really how I tell my trainees to do this is, you know, you're doing this like any other reduction in the ER, you know, conscious sedation, and you're doing the same reduction maneuver that you do in the operating room, you know, is that hyperflexion. And then generally, just like we find in the operating room with these, with these type twos, once you get that, that, that hinge back, it's, I don't want to say it's stable, but it's not going to flop over again. And so you can bring them into that hyperflex position for the reduction, bring them back to 90 and cast them there. And, and the, most of them are going to stay. Great. Let's, um, let's hit another article. Josh, do you want to take one of yours? Yeah, we'll just jump back to that fun Perthes discussion we were having before. <laughs> um, and so the article that um, I'm presenting is out of India. And what they looked at was the outcomes of their Perthes. And they are also in the International um, Perthes Study Group. And so they specifically mentioned that a um, portion of their cohort of um, of one of their study groups was done for that reason. But that what they did is they looked at patients who were in a prolonged non-weight-bearing status versus the more traditional, which, as Dr. Kelly said, um, would be to do a varus osteotomy and then be non-weight-bearing for six weeks, essentially for healing of the osteotomy. And so when they compared the two groups, and again, the long, the prolonged non-weight-bearing was until reossification. And so that ranged from, you know, several months to over a year, eight to 18 months of non-weight-bearing. And what they found was, I, I was actually relatively um, surprised by the differences what they found. They looked at a lot of different radiographic findings of the sphericity of the head, of the um, width of the epiphysis, and found essentially significant differences across the board as far as how round that head was able to stay and or remodel in the patients who had a prolonged um, non-weight bearing after a varus osteotomy. So um, odds ratios of three for healing with a more spherical head in patients who were in the shorter or hearing with an, an asymmetric spherical head um, in the patients with a shorter weight bearing. Um, essentially everything that they looked at was statistically significantly different in the prolonged non-weight bearing group. So certainly raises the question um, and puts more impetus. Again, this is all patients who had a varus osteotomy. So that is step one is, is that your treatment protocol? And, and similar to what Dr. Kelly mentioned um, in patients with later disease or early disease in older kids, or also they included patients less than six who had, um, but essentially younger kids with more severe disease or older kids in early disease. So I open that to you guys. Um, Again, the, the findings that they had, at least radiographically, which mostly what this was looking at is kind of the radiographic outcomes of prolonged weight-bearing, which has not been something that I have done. I, I keep kids non-weight-bearing just for healing of an osteotomy, essentially, but have never really given any real consideration for keeping kids non-weight-bearing for 12 to 18 months. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Dr. Kelly, you're, you're in this group and have obviously had a lot of conversations about some of the different protocols. Um, what are your thoughts on prolonged non-weight bearing? So yeah, a couple of things uh, about this uh, study. So uh, Ben Joseph is just a giant in, in Perthes and uh, he's, you know, he's on par with Tony Herring as far as his knowledge and publications. And then Hitesh Shaw has done a great deal of work on this, particularly with the uh, sphericity deviation score. And 
Um, I think that's going to be a, a very valid score for us to use forward. So I think this is a very well done study. Um, the, this group, they had to back off on their non-weight bearing. So they would non-weight bear all the way until reossification. And in order to enroll patients in the study, they had to pick either six weeks or six months after their osteotomy. So they dialed it back to six months. Um, in my practice, I had the option of staying at six weeks or going to six months, and I, and I kept it at six weeks. And of course, the, the results of our study still aren't out. This makes me worry that, um, you know, our six months results may not be as good as we hoped if, if, their, if their results are, you know, are true in, in other patient populations. Uh, but it's, it's very interesting data. Now, you bring up a couple of important caveats that I think we have to consider, and the authors brought it up as well, is what does this do psychologically? And, and they downplayed it a little bit as this, this is not as bad as, as we think it might be for kids. And they, they mentioned a, a study that, that shows that with promise data that that may be the case, that these kids may tolerate non, prolonged non-weight bearing better than we think. But that still worries me a lot. I mean, as Perthes providers, we see it all the time. And I feel like I'm more of a psychologist than I am a surgeon when I'm seeing a Perthes family because it's it's such a challenging disease on the entire family. Uh, and I spend more time kind of counseling than I do talking about surgical decisions. So it's a very interesting study. I'd like to see how this thing goes. Maybe with the IPSG and that large database, we can come up with some more answers. I'd like to hear other thoughts on this though. Yeah, my, my big question is what is the generalizability of a study from India where you're telling patients that to stay off it versus how would some of my patients react to that? And um, I, I don't know how I would actually get them to stay off of uh, their legs and stay non-weight bearing for a prolonged period of time. Um, and, and then I also wonder about the, uh, as you mentioned, the psychological implications. It reminds me a lot of bracing for scoliosis, where you feel a lot more like a psychologist and a surgeon trying to figure out how to motivate someone to wear their brace. Yeah, I think it's I think it's something that these study groups will be helpful for, though, because, again, you take a, a group that's in a large international study group and you start to look at their data. And then eventually when the rest of the study group gets the data and you have enough to really look at it in much bigger numbers, I think we'll get some important data from that. So another plug for being involved in different groups and academic groups and social groups and, and all the rest can be very helpful. All right. So Julia, you don't take care of spine. What number do you try to get patients to stay under to tell them that their curve will not keep progressing into adulthood? You know, so I, I, I don't want to cheat because I did read this. Oh, you cheated. Think, okay. Don't. Yeah. Tell us so, then. but yeah, so I cheated, but I would say honestly, before this, uh, I thought that you wanted to keep it under 30. That was kind of what I had in my head that, you know, as a non-spine person mm -hmm. morning conference, like let's keep it low. So this, yeah. this study's cool. Well, this is, so this is a study actually in JBJS, um, and it is a study out of Hong Kong. And essentially what they did is they said, okay, we accept that we have good data that curves over 50 progress. And we accept that as we do surgery on patients with curves over 50, that's, you know, that's pretty well accepted internationally, but it'd be nice to actually ask them and just see and say, did you clinically feel like you were just having enough patients have progression um, with curves in the 40s to, to kind of warrant this? And I would suspect that they did. But what they did is they continued to follow all their patients beyond skeletal maturity who had curves in the 40 to 50 range. And they came back for at least annual radiographs. 
And so the study looked at 73 skeletally mature patients um, with an average post-maturity follow-up of almost 12 years. So this wasn't, you know, they followed them for a couple extra years and didn't see that curves progressed and called it good. Um, I think a pretty, a pretty clean, although moderately small, but a pretty good clean study group followed these patients out and then looked and with annual, at least annual radiographs, were able to look and see curve progression. Um, and what they found is that most patients progressed. So 61% of patients had curve progression um, continuing through skeletal maturity. And then they tried to divide it into the kind of typical progressing, which was less than two degrees per year on average versus um, what they called fast progression, which was more than three degrees per year. Um, most of the patients fell into the typical progressing, but a, a lot of them fell into the more rapid progressing, which, you know, on average three degrees from here, if you're starting in the 40 degree range, that is going to be um, a significant progression of their curve clinically. So they then tried to look at radiographic parameters to try and predict, because again, following every kid whose curve is in the forties for 12 years may not be um, ideal. So they tried to look at radiographic findings to, to predict curve progression and found a few things that showed some significance. And they did a lot of statistics and area under the curve analyses and things like that, but essentially showed that apical wedging and um, coronal imbalance were two radiographic findings that, that were significant for curve progression um, that at least weren't monitoring. That was really their conclusion that patients with curves 40 to 50s who have some of these radiographic findings, you may not jump on surgery straight away for them, but they at least warrant follow-up and monitoring at least annually. So even just from reading this a few weeks ago, honestly, I, I can tell you I've had, I want to say 10 patients in the last couple of weeks who I've gotten to where the point where I'm pretty comfortable. And, you know, I always very carefully tell families 50 is the number, but it's not magic number, right? It's, it's a ballpark number and it depends on where your curve is, thoracic curve versus lumbar and kind of give them all that. But in counseling patients, just after having read this study and prepared for the podcast today, the last few weeks, I, I can tell you, I've even had a little second thought in my head of giving too much confidence to these families that a curve in the low forties that, that we think as they get to be closer and closer to skeletally mature is going to stabilize. Um, I've been a little bit more hesitant to, to tell families that, um, I don't know, Craig, what do you think? I'm curious, um, what, what, uh, what Derek thinks in terms of, I mean, I, I'm sure you expected this as well, um, that there are certainly curves 40 degrees and above. I, I'm curious, what, what do you tell those families there? How do you, how do you counsel them? And, and, uh, what do you do with your 40 degree curves at maturity? Well, I'm really fortunate in my practice location. I'm in a large multi-specialty group and I can follow patients into adulthood without any problem. It's not like I have to kick them out of the children's hospital. It depends a little bit on some of their insurances, but for the most part, I can continue to follow them. And and I am not, I'm not very aggressive. Perhaps maybe I'm not aggressive enough. Some might argue, but I mean, I have to see a curve over 50 degrees that's progressing uh, before I'm going to recommend some child go in or a young adult to go in the operating room and, and have a big spine surgery. Um, because I don't, I don't feel like the, the morbidity is all that much greater with a 60 degree curve as it is with a, you know, a 48 degree curve. So I want to see that curve progressing now, however, however, if the curve is progressing, it certainly makes a lot of sense to have your surgery when you're 16 or 17 than when you're 26 or 27 for all the reasons that we know. So I have tended to follow these curves, um, because, you know, if, if it's over 40, I, I still think we need to watch it, but I'm not going to recommend a surgery until this thing has shown some progression. 
Would you have, without obviously analyzing all your data, the, the number surprised me, 62% of curves showed what they thought was true radiographic progression. Is that, that's higher than I would have predicted. That's kind of higher than I thought. I knew that when I saw the title and knew what the study was going to be about, I figured that they were going to have a fair amount of progression between 40 and 50 to some amount. I was a little surprised the number was that high, but it does give me confidence for what I kind of thought that we needed to do is maybe follow some of these people into their late adolescence and early adult life to see what happens. Now, now that I know that there are a few things that maybe really matter, if I do see any, any coronal imbalance, perhaps I'm going to be more aggressive, but I'm not sure that I'm not going to follow patients without that. I'm still going to say maybe we need to see you back for at least a couple of years. One of the interesting things about this study design was when they decided maturity was, right? And that's a big question that we all have in terms of when do we stop bracing? When do we decide, okay, you're mature and good enough is good enough. So um, this is one of my stirring the pot questions for you, Derek. When do you stop bracing? Uh, just on radiographs? I mean, uh, I guess I mean, I'll just answer well, it, it could be radiographs. It could be height, yeah. menarxatus, whatever you do. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if it's a, if it's a woman, a uh, young girl, two years uh, post-menarchal and risk for three or greater, um, I'm not going to recommend. Basically, I tell the families, if you walked in today with this x-ray, I probably would not prescribe a brace because I think you're too old. So if they're at that point, I'm not going to tell them they need to continue to wear the brace. Okay. So a couple different things go into that. Yep. Um, Julia, do you want to pick up the uh, the femur femur fracture, femoral neck fractures? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, something that I think was beat into a lot of us in residency, you know, was to look for femoral neck fractures with associated ipsilateral uh, shaft fractures, um, and you know, I think there's some literature out there in the adult world particularly that this is actually a, a some reports as high as 9% in, in adults. And so um, these authors did a great job of, of saying, you know, wh what do we think that rate is in kids? And I think um, if you'd asked all of us, did everybody read this kind of assuming everybody did? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think if you'd asked me what the rate was, I probably would have said, you know, well, I know it's lower than adults, but I can't tell you what it is. And so um, they looked through the authors looked through the FIS database um, for, for folks that had femoral neck fractures with associated femoral shaft fractures. And, um, the rate was actually less than 1%. So it was 82.3 per 10,000 patients. Um, and so really, really low rate, especially compared to adults. And so their kind of punchline was, you know, occasionally in adult centers, they'll, they'll routinely get, uh, CT scans, to rule out femoral neck fractures or, or MRIs to rule out femoral neck fractures. And um, so their punchline was that that is not necessary in pediatric patients. And um, so personally, I, I totally agree with that. I was not routinely getting CT scans unless the patient comes in with this pan scan, which seems to be incredibly common these days and you can check anyway. Um, but if I've got a femoral shaft fracture, you know, I'll just take a couple of views on fluoroscopy, uh, make sure I don't see anything. Uh, but I certainly don't think you need to do anything more than that. And I think this is a nice nice study, um, you know, retrospective uh, database studies are, are a little tough to, to glean a ton of information from, but I think this is one study that actually is, is very helpful as far as just, just purely what is the incidence. So, um, I'm curious, did anybody previous to seeing this routinely get CT scans to rule out femoral neck fractures? So the, yeah, the answer to that is yes, but not in kids. 
So, at, yeah. uh, you know, Campbell Clinic, I take adult call. We've got an adult level one hospital just across the street from the level one pediatric hospital. And our poor residents go back and forth. And in one hospital, they're CT scanning every femoral neck fracture. And in the other hospital, we're telling them don't CT scan any of these. Um, but yeah, it feels like the data is is uh, is what it should be. I mean, that number should be very, very low. Uh, we don't, of course, do that in kids. Um, and we didn't mention this is um, from Boston, uh, from the Boston group. Ben Shores, the senior author. Um, but I, I, I thought, well, obviously this is going to be the case because high energy fractures in adults, right. Versus someone twisted their leg on the playground. But then I thought for the older children that it, maybe it would apply. But when you look at the age breakdowns, even the 14 to 18 year olds, it didn't really like, there weren't a higher percentage of these concomitant femoral shaft and femoral neck fractures. So it does really seem to be, um, uh, not, not very prevalent in children, of all age groups, anything under I, 18. I start thinking about that femoral neck fracture at the same time I start thinking about DVT prophylaxis. And when a kid starts getting old enough, I think, man, should I anticoagulate this kid or give them an aspirin or something? I start thinking, man, should I think about CTing their neck? Because, you know, that same night I'm on call, I'm on call at the adult hospital too and worrying about those same issues. Uh, I did think that Ben and his team, uh, Ben Shore and his team did a great job with getting uh, a very answerable question and answering it well from a large database study. This is probably the right way to do that. And I really want to congratulate his team on this. So Derek, I'm imagining the junior resident calling you from the adult hospital with the femoral shaft fracture and you're telling them you always get a CT scan. And then they call you an hour later from the children's hospital and you're braiding them for getting a CT scan. on the child. Yeah, no, I don't have to tell them <laughs> to get a CT scan to the adult hospital. They, they're, they're doing that by protocol. Oh, that's mm -hmm. great. Um, let's see. We did have uh, one more about surgical excision of post-axial polydactyly. The one question I had about that study, and I'll, I'll, I'll briefly summarize it, I guess, if you don't mind, is that yeah, you know, they, they're doing they're doing basically the, the little small skin tag type uh, polydactylies in the office. But when you read their uh, technique, they're doing you know, lidocaine with, uh, without epi or with epi? Without. Um, without epi. And they have a little uh, battery cartery in the, in the uh, clinic with them. The question I had is, how did they bill and collect for this? And I wanted to reach out and ask them. The, um, the skin tag code you can use, the 11200, uh, it's like 0.8 RVUs. It's tiny. Uh, if you're trying to use the reconstruction of a polydactyly code, you really can't use that in a clinical setting, or at least in the clinic setting that I'm aware of. But I'm not sure it would apply because they don't really have any major bony elements that they're separating. So um, I like this idea. Um, I think this is something that could be done. That's not my routine. Uh, but it would be cool to do these. I still tie them off. In fact, I tied off a couple today, but they were very heavy in their introduction about how that can cause lots of problems with, you know, neuromas and pains and persistent skin tags and bad scars. And um, it'd be interesting to see if that's something that anybody else does on the call. No, we, we tie off and I just, again, I, I have not seen the complications and the troubles that would lead me to think that I need to do something different. Uh, I, what I will I, do, though, I think I'm now going to really start asking the families because I had a I had a patient's father today. The one I tied off is, is I was getting ready to do it. He held up his hands and he had two little scars. I'm going to really start asking those families, you know, how how does yours? Does it bother you at all? And if I start hearing more and more that the, the parents are complaining about their scars or pain, maybe this is something we ought to consider a lot more. I think this group did a great job of presenting their data. Um, be interested to see if um, if other people are doing this. Derek, were yeah, you this is a, 
really great idea. I don't do these in clinic, but I think this is a pretty convincing argument to, uh, to take care of them in clinic like this. So um, I always tied them off when I saw them, you know, as a resident, I remember being, being told that that's, that was the right deal, but I don't see them um, now, but I'm, I'm sort of interested how common this is. I'm um, just to weigh in. I've been, I've been using the vascular clips. Um, I've only done that since I've uh, uh, changed practices just because my partners have kind of told me that you can seem to get those closer to the stock. So maybe cosmetically down the line, it seems to be a little bit easier, but um, uh, you know, we, I do a sterile setup for that. And so adding on, adding on a little elliptical incision and a stitch would probably not be a whole lot more. The battery powered electrocautery though, I think Derek, what you were getting to is, is that cost more than the work RVUs you're bringing in? And is this uh, cost neutral uh, or negative for the institution? And um, maybe it's it happens so infrequently, it maybe doesn't matter, but uh, but I don't know. Is that where you're going with that? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I just want to look a little, I, I was worried that, uh, I always worry about the bleeding. And that's one reason I like to do some of these bigger ones in a controlled setting where I can kind of control that little artery. And maybe if you just hold pressure for long enough, it'll stop. But I've never had the courage to do that. So I was I was wondering if that's what they were doing, just taking a knife and slicing it off and holding pressure for five minutes. Uh, but they were actually doing a little mini, mini surgical procedure, which makes a lot more sense to me. And I think that's probably the correct learning curve if you're going to do it is to uh, is to bring the equipment you need to the clinical setting and do it properly. And the point that they make in the article about the technique is um, pull tension on the nerve because a lot of times there's a nerve and then ligate it up high with the electrocautery. So then it retracts within and you don't get a neuroma. And so that, that I think that they would claim that that's the major advantage of this strategy is eliminating the bump and the painful neuroma. Um, so that I think that's why they'd had the cautery. If anyone's going to start doing this, uh, I would definitely suggest you read their technique and exactly how they do it and try to copy that as close as you can to it makes a lot of sense yep all right um and uh I, I think that that's that's probably it for our for the plans but i did want to also um congratulate you derek and, and thank you for um, having the podcast uh in, at ipos this year where you were uh instrumental and in, and in getting that program off the ground i know that you are the co-director of ipos this coming december and we're a little bit early so we're gonna have to plug this later uh, in October as well. Maybe we'll make a few sound bits here that we can reinsert throughout the months. But um, any any thoughts you want to share about uh, the upcoming uh, the upcoming meeting? Uh, yeah, in, so in um, definitely. Yeah, thanks thanks for bringing that up. We we can't talk about uh, IPOS enough. Um, it's going to be a wonderful meeting. Uh, Sukin has done a great job. Shaw Sukin Shaw has done a great job for the last couple of years. He and I are working together this year, and then I'll be taking over directorship uh, for a couple of years after this. Uh, the planning for 2023 started the minute 2022 ended, and we've had multiple calls and multiple meetings, including two already today. It's just going to be a great program. It's going to elevate even higher. Uh, the the mid-career is something I really want to highlight in this few moments that I have. Uh, the mid-career program, uh, IPOS is really trying to bring back uh, a lot of mid-career surgeons, and there's a specific curriculum for that particular group. It's really not so much about the nuts and bolts of orthopedics, but about you know leadership and finance and educating and providing feedback and all these other things that that you really want to start thinking about in your in your middle career. So for those who have not been to IPOS in a long, long time, uh, please consider looking at the curriculum and uh, planning to come back to Orlando. Bring your family, ride some roller coasters, and and have a really good time. It's going to be a great, great meeting. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, congratulations, you guys, for re-envisioning uh, that portion of the meeting because uh, you know, we we came back because we were trying to do some recordings, but 
that mid-career session was, I think, a real game changer. And uh, it, it takes all the great things about IPOS in terms of being interactive and uh, being a great symposium and not as much research-based, but made it applicable to a broader broader group within POSNA. And I think that that was, that was really awesome. And I, I appreciate it. Do you guys have any survey data and uh, hard data about what the Oh, I know you guys are pretty analytical with that, but I'm just curious if you'd share what, what the outcomes were and what people thought of that session. Yeah, it was extremely well received. Now, the the registration, the, the people who actually registered to come to that specific portion of the course, it's kind of a separate carve-out course. If you wanted to just come for those that day and a half, you could. The registration was actually small, but the room was packed. So there were a lot of people who signed up for the full course who chose to use their time to go to that course. And the feedback was really phenomenal. It was it was overwhelming that we needed to do it again. Now we're trying to decide, do we need to try to pack all of it into just one year or do we need to try to spread this out over two years, encourage people to, to get it all? You need to come kind of two years in a row because there was just so much content to try to squeeze into a day and a half. The thought is to not try to make someone come for the entire week and try to kind of uh, compartmentalize some of these things. Um, the, the essential curriculum is still there for the resident and the fellow, the advanced practice providers and POPs. So there's a huge curriculum for there for them. It's very innovative. Top Gun, of course, is still there. Uh, it's all kinds of great and fun things, but we're still continuing to try to innovate and add uh, as we can. It's going to be a great meeting. Well, thanks for all your efforts with that. You, you and the rest of the, uh, the, the meeting planners and the meeting committee for that. Um, Julia, Josh, last thoughts? No, I just thank you, Dr. Kelly. As always, we appreciate your your support of the podcast and and your support of up and coming and developing surgeons like ourselves. And um, appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight and the very thoughtful and insightful messages that you had. Wonderful. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. you very much. Yeah, Julia, everybody, thank you guys so much for this. It's been super fun. Um, I will continue to support this as every way that I can, including listening to every one of these. Uh, this is one of my highlights when I get a new and I turn on the car as soon as I can and listen to it till it's done. So thank you so much. Continue this work. That's awesome. We, we certainly will. We all, we all get a lot out of it. Enjoy it. Um, so thanks to our listeners and uh, we'll catch you all next month.